when it comes to younger generation. Let's mm-hmm. just be together here for a moment. Younger generation. <laughs> Are you trying to? You're bringing yes, us I'm together. Bringing us together. <laughs> you're building a bridge between you and I <laughs> through money. Yes. <laughs> Well, we, we we are Americans after all. We are. Okay. We are. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Human Element, Kara's podcast on modern marketing. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to have Sharon Profus, executive editor for CNET, part of CBS Interactive. Hello. Hi, how you doing? I'm great. So you've been like running around the city. I've been running around the city. Luckily, it's not 100 degrees in New yeah, York, so I can do that. For the first day in like forever. Yes. So and the humidity is down a little, right? Yeah, I feel great. I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I always say this when I do these pods because I'm always interested in sort of people's roles and how they got there and what that looks like. So let's start there. I have been at CBS Interactive slash CNET for more than 10 years now. Yeah. And I actually started as an intern. And the way that I got my internship at CNET was I've always been very obsessed with technology. And I built my first computer when I was 12. Built. Built. You, I mean, at some point you had to. If you wanted certain specs, you had to start putting things together yourself. This so. is one of those moments when I wish my dad was still alive because he would be all over this. <laughs> In fact, I'd just walk out the door and he could take over the chair because you'd talk about building computers. Yes. Yeah, he loved that. Which people don't even think of now. Now no. computers are things that are behind aluminum and who knows what's <laughs> inside of them. Once they break, you throw them away, right? Yes. But so... I have always been interested in technology, knew that I somehow wanted to work in tech. And when I found the opportunity, I started to attend trade shows, work at trade shows, work at networking events. So I don't know if you remember, but before tech was something that everyone worked in, in order to meet other people who worked in tech, you had to attend these networking events. And so I would either attend or literally work the door. I mean, I was in college at this point or, or late high school even. And someone who went to these events was like, you're always here. And I'm like... Do you hate me? Um, No, Uh, you're always here. I'm like, yeah, I just love being here. I want to know what's going on in tech. And he's like, well, you should see if CNET is hiring. So I did. They weren't hiring uh, freshman college students, unfortunately. (laughs) Not at that time. Not at that time. Uh, But they were hiring an internship position to oversee the CNET lab, which is where we receive new products, inventory them, and then test them, and then send them back. So... I started as a CNET lab intern. I did those things, a lot of like clerical, simple, like check-in, check-out type work. And then I was like, I like to write. Can I write a story? And at the time, I had just finished working at Best Buy, where I also scratched my tech itch. (laughs) And I decided that my first story should be a really low-key, seven things electronic salesperson won't tell you. Ah. And it totally blew up. Yeah, Yeah, very catchy. I spilled some, you know, lightweight secrets. And ever since then, I really haven't stopped writing. Were you fired from Best Buy? <laughs> I had already quit. Oh, okay. That, that, was a, that was the right order. Yes, yeah. it was the right order. I didn't, you know, luckily I didn't say anything awful. Just sort of doing what we do at CNET, which is advocate for the consumer. Sure. So I didn't stop writing. I started doing video. And as soon as I graduated from college with a broadcasting degree, I launched CNET How To. 
that's the story of how you became America's sort of official device guru consultant person. Yeah. All right. After I launched CNET How To, I continued to produce and write my own how-to videos. Yep. I did a few video premium video series. One was called Counterspace, which explored the intersection of food and technology. Part of that was due to the fact that I also had a five-year stint as a cooking host on PBS. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So you literally had a cooking show. Yeah. It was called Farm to Fork. It was a part of a national series called America's Heartland. And I would visit farmers and learn about their produce or, in some cases, their ranch, their meat. And then we'd go back to a kitchen and cook a few recipes. I have rarely felt so inferior in terms of my career arc than right now. <laughs> like, you've done five billion things, and you are significantly younger than I am. So I caught a little bit of a, a snippet of the cooking show. It was great. Oh, thank you. I mean, you. I don't cook. Yeah. But it was fun to kind of watch and listen and learn a bit. Well, you know, 75% of people who watch cooking shows don't cook. So yes. you are a part of the majority. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive in a little bit to sort of your space. We obviously find ourselves in a torrent of devices. And, I, you know, the sheer volume of this stuff is overwhelming to me each year when I go to CES. Since you have to try to cover or select or be aware of some piece of all of it. How do you even tackle that? Wow. Yeah. CES, <laughs> well, I was triggered a little bit because you said CES and we are already planning for CES 2020, but yeah. that really is the perfect context for what we do, which is yeah. synthesize, make sense of, and prioritize a lot of information, a yep. lot of devices. So, Making this challenge even greater is the fact that companies that never considered themselves to be technology companies, CPG companies even, are also in the technology business now. Exactly. So you have more devices than ever. It sounds a little cliche, but we look for the devices that will actually make a difference in people's lives. Yep. And sometimes that means looking for devices that actually do have new and different and innovative technology. And sometimes that means pointing out devices from companies that you've never heard of, but are actually innovating, mm. which I'm saying like that because there are many <laughs> devices that are created these days, not for the sake of innovation, but for the sake of creating a new device, a successor to the previous device. Mm. And those are still incredibly valuable. They always do include some sort of improvement over the previous year's technology. But I think that what gets us as technology reporters, journalists, producers excited are the things that we haven't seen before. The iPad number X from the iPad number Y, what do you need and what's better? And should you buy it now or should you wait later? Should you wait for whatever comes next? There is a time and space for that kind of content, but frankly, that's less exciting than here is the new wearable UV filter. Exactly. Yeah, and, or measurement device or whatever. Right. Yeah. And the former bucket of devices that you described, they're necessary yes. because those are a part of our lives now. We yep. literally can't live without some of those devices. And once the current device you have starts to feel heavy or doesn't work with the services that yep. you subscribe to, then it's time to upgrade. And that's great. That's just a normal part of everyday life. Meaning it's not for the tech savvy. It's not for the early adopters. Tech is just a part of everybody's life. It's that second bucket that I'm most excited sure. about. 
is those new innovative devices. Let's kind of go into what is coming next in a few big bucket areas. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. Let's do healthcare first. Massive explosion of healthcare stuff, impenetrable number of things. What are sort of the biggest themes and movements in healthcare devices? Just to go back to CES one more time, I would say that the most exciting thing about CES 2019 was definitely all of the health and wellness devices that came out. One of the first most important themes, I think, is the fact that consumers want to be and are the CEOs of their own bodies. Mm. That is a very broad way of saying that Consumers are taking health into their own hands, whether or not doctors are ready. And the way that's manifesting most clearly today is through wearables that either do something as generic as track steps and heart rate or niche devices that do something like measure your blood pressure wirelessly every day of the year. Consumers are also taking control over their own health through services like telemedicine, so services like Doctor on Demand, means that you don't have to leave your house to get a prescription for something you know you need, for example. Like, that sounds so simple, but it's going to have a massive impact on consumers' healthcare, especially as you start to add layers of other technology to it. So, for example artificial intelligence, right? We couldn't have this conversation without bringing AI up. And AI will have an incredible impact on healthcare in all ways. But in this specific example, it's something as simple as not even having to connect with a doctor to figure out whether or not a mole that you just discovered is cancerous or not. So AI will also bridge the gap between the healthcare concerns that a patient might have and actually executing on getting help for it because the delta there is actually really huge. And it means the difference between preventative care and post-diagnosis care, basically. Which is a massive difference. Yes, it is. I'm on my third or fourth Apple Watch. Let's go. I think it's there there at four. Yep, we're at four, yep. If we see a lot of specialization, both of the hardware and platforms, software applications themselves, where does it leave something that I would call a more general device? What you'll see happen to devices like the Apple Watch is they will become the central platforms for all the other niche devices that you add into your life based on your healthcare needs. So right now, sometimes the Apple Watch, for example, starts to feel specialized when it has a built-in ECG. But eventually, that's just going to be a baseline feature that all of these wearables have. And again, the device becomes more generic. You know, it's kind of, it feels like it's diminishing saying that, but it it, it is. An aggregator of sorts. an aggregator. So the best analogy, the best way to think about this is to look at the smart home. So the devices like Nest or Google Home, Hub, or uh, Amazon Echo, Alexa, those are not the things that actually make your home smart. They control your home. So 
things, devices like the Apple Watch will be the aggregators. They will be the brain and the central, um, the central nervous system, really, for the uh, all the other devices and services in your life. And that's where we see companies like Apple and Google and Samsung investing is in becoming that the home kit or the health kit in Apple's case of yep. healthcare. What are the implications for marketers in the health and wellness space? You know, obviously there are category adjacent brands for whom it's incredibly relevant, but there's still lots of opportunity for non-category adjacent brands. How should they be thinking about it? I think the step one for a marketer to take is to recognize and even experience firsthand how far-flung personal healthcare is from the actual doctor's office and what it feels like to have ownership over your own wellness and what that means. And what it means is what we're talking about, these niche devices that do very specific things and therefore relay very specific recommendations. Okay, so I just want to give you an example. I don't think it's the best example of marketing, but I... But we it, specialize it, in bad marketing here, so that's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So there is this connected thermometer that you use it to check your temperature, check your kid's temperature. And as users check temperatures, that data is sent back to a central server anonymously, and it is aggregated and analyzed such that this company can predict when there will be flu outbreaks in certain areas. Yeah. Now... Google has been able to do this for a really long time, just based on search. But this is a non-Google company doing that. And what they ended up doing was being able to recommend antibacterial products in response to Mm. potential um, outbreaks in certain areas. Amazon, for example, has filed a patent. Again, you know, disclaimer, it's a patent. Doesn't mean it's going to come. Where a person comes home, they start talking to their Alexa device. They're congested. Alexa knows that they're congested. As a result, recommends a chicken noodle recipe and a maybe a prescription refill or some over-the-counter cough medicine. Right. I think the point is that consumer needs, they're already very specific and niche, they will become even more specific and niche as a result of the data being collected by these devices. And I think the question is, what value will you provide as a mm. result of that? It's A, fascinating, amazing, right, blah, blah, all the happy words. Mm-hmm. As a marketer, it's also slightly terrifying. Mm. One of the primary reasons why is that as we make things more niche and niche and niche and niche and niche and niche, we lose scale, we lose connectivity, and I think brand building becomes a much more challenging and totally different enterprise. Have you thought at all about that? I have. It sounds like a problem. (laughs) Y'all need to solve, like, tomorrow. (laughs) No, I I really have because you're right. We're talking about micro experiences, micro devices, micro services. So... Suddenly, like you said, the brand becomes fragmented and maybe not available in all the parts of these people's lives. So I don't have a good answer. It's going to be a challenge trying to figure out how do you stay top of mind when voice assistants, for example, are 
adding things to consumers' carts based on what the yep. best sellers are yep. or what the number one result is for whatever reason, yep. SEO or otherwise. And so brand building, whatever that means to each individual brand, becomes yep. more important because what you want is consumers to be demanding your brand specifically. Yeah, that is the issue, particularly when some of the big distribution channels are your direct competitors in terms of manufacturing and providing those same products. One interesting, maybe it's not so much a micro trend, maybe it is just a trend that I saw, especially come to the surface this year in Cannes, is the idea that big brands can also have smaller, even one-off D2C brands or products. Yeah. And so maybe it's less about forcing this like one omni brand and more about consumers are comfortable buying brands that they've never heard of before. Yeah. So maybe that's what it's going to be about in the future as well. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if, if you look at my kids, now is the official time on each podcast where I bring up my children. Yes. It usually happens about the same time. You know, there's at least two things that were a massive part of my life that are simply irrelevant to my children. There's many more, but two things always strike me. The first one is television programs that used to occur at a particular time. Mm. My children do not even know what a broadcast network is that shows have a time. This is like, they just are like, I don't understand why I can't watch it now. It just fundamentally doesn't click, right? Yep. And then the second thing is the power of brands. Mm -hmm. And that in a previous era, you wouldn't see some kind of Instagram ad for a t-shirt company you've never heard uh, you know, from in your entire life and go, I love that shirt. It's so cool. What an amazing brand. Instantaneously, this thing is a brand. And you're like, how can, it's not, it, you know what I mean? It's just right. a t-shirt company. Right. And it is a, it's a remarkable testament to the platform and the power of the platform itself. But it's also a remarkable testament to how the behavior has changed so significantly in some of these younger populations. It doesn't matter. The barriers are gone. Oh, yeah. One friend has it. No friends have it. Right. The creative is good. An influencer told me they tried it and they liked it. Yeah. So I'm going to go for it. I wore it and got a lot of likes. Right. Yeah. So let's talk payment services for a second. I know this is a bit of a segue, but I'm fascinated by this space. I, I sort of have this closet interest uh, as a marketer on industries that have not yet been fully whacked in the head by the transformative power of the web. For as much transformation as happened in financial services, there's a whole lot more coming. I'm really interested in sort of where the payment services space is going and who, if anyone, is maybe winning at the moment because it's hard for me to tell from my vantage point. So your Googles and your Apples and your, you know, your Apple Pays. Do we have any sort of leaders among those yet? Or is it still just the Wild West? If we think about it, like, what will we think in 10 years? We'll look back and say, wow, it was definitely the Wild West. Because yeah. number one, something as simple as contactless mobile payments, NFC payments, Apple Pay, yep. for example, are still not ubiquitous. No, by a, by a wide margin. My cousin was visiting from Tel Aviv, and I paid with Apple Pay at a coffee shop, and he was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, dude, I literally don't carry my wallet half the time in San Francisco because right. it, everyone accepts these payments. So from a worldwide perspective, a global sure. perspective especially, that is still incredibly fragmented and we are not on the same page. Let's assume that, let's just talk about the U.S., everyone accepts mobile payments and it's ubiquitous. Well, 
Then the next step is what Apple is already doing, which is be the bank. So it's about consolidation, making life simpler. I think that banks are in a really interesting position right now because it's like, okay, how do we... Just like the brand question, how do we stay Mm. significant when especially young folks start to tie the idea of money with their mobile devices, for instance, then where where does that leave the bank? On the outside. On the outside, yes. Yeah, I agree. I think the banks are, you know, they've got real challenges ahead. Which is why I think that this is a really good time for a bank to start thinking of itself more like a service rather than a function of someone's life. So help me understand where my money is going, not through your crappy desktop platform. Tell me how I should be investing my money so that I don't only have to rely on my employer or go to these shady, like, personal finance gurus, right? Like, there is an opportunity to leverage the authority that a bank has today in a way that keeps them relevant for a very long time. So what big trends should agencies and marketers be focused on? The trends that marketers should be focused on, I think, go back to some of the things that we've been talking about. Number one, especially the millennial and younger generation, will go after products that are incredibly niche because they address a very specific life need. Mm. And It's less about picking a few services or devices in your life that do everything and more about having a lot of services that do a lot of little things and a lot of devices and products that do a lot of little things. That's one abstract trend to be focused on. A couple not abstract tech-related trends to be focused on are artificial intelligence and the idea that once it is everywhere, life will feel so much more personalized for the average consumer. Yeah. And so what? how are you contributing to that new lifestyle? Mm. Because if you are not, then suddenly your offerings seem really disconnected and generic in comparison to a competitor who is giving their customer exactly what they want. Yep. And then the third thing, which really is TBD, is the onset of 5G. Mm. It's already started to roll out and it's going to change our lives. We just don't yet know how. Yep. And the reason is for the same reason that we didn't really understand 4G. It's because you don't know what you can do with something until you have it in your hands, yeah. right? 4G rolled out because of mobile video delivery. And what we got out of 4G was Airbnb, Spotify, Uber, right? Like Netflix, all of these things that we could have never predicted. Nobody said, I'm coming out with 4G because I want to build Netflix. Like, no. So who knows what 5G will bring? So I would say be prepared to take advantage of this new incredible network that is going to be begging for innovation. Related to that last portion, so the last two, one around sort of the the rollout of 5G, do you have a sense on realistic availability of said platform at scale over X amount of time? I think that because 5G will be so influential on our lives and companies, governments, whomever stand to financially benefit Mm -hmm. a lot from it, it will roll out 
faster than we think. Hmm. And it's just about getting those few pockets in the U.S. going, and then it'll happen a lot faster. That is my guess. Mm. But anybody who tells you exactly what will happen is lying to you. I I think that's probably true. Yes. (laughs) On a number of topics, as it turns out. Very true. You recently wrote a great little piece around screen time. Do you mind summarizing it? And then let's sort of talk about that issue for a minute. The summary is that screens are literally ruining our brains, fact, because we spend too much time with them. Yeah. And the article also was more helpful in that I provided several (laughs) ways (laughs) to actually peel away from the screen. Yes, you did. It made me chuckle at times. (laughs) So I guess, A, I'm with you, but this is a real problem on 10 different levels, right? So level one, as a human Mm -hmm. who is device consumed for a number of semi-justifiable reasons and then a bunch of non-justifiable reasons, there's sort of our own personal responsibility for how we behave with the phone. And as you note in your article, that's a real challenge. I struggle with it. I, I'm at least counting now. Before, I wasn't even counting, right? It was That's like, fantastic. The first, step, the first step to knowing you have a problem is evaluating how bad the problem is. <laughs> and in correct. my particular case, the problem is bad. Okay. But then you have levels like, my son's going to school. We were out at orientation. And they presented sort of a, a, a survey of students, their own students. And the health and wellness section is terrifying. The increase in the past five or six years of depression, anxiety, significant mental health-oriented challenges is terrifying. Yeah. And the schools are sitting around going, we have to do something. Yeah. It is a huge problem for all ages and all generations. And the issue is so complex no one knows where to start, which yeah. is why I'm just like, just start yeah, yeah. with yourself. Yeah. But here's here, I'll just name a few of the root problems here. Number one, I think that we as a society have gotten better at seeking help and recognizing potential cases in ourselves or others of anxiety and depression. And therefore, that's part of the reason why some of the numbers I think have also gone up as we've become more comfortable uh, talking about it. Just, a lot just more awareness. I agree. Yeah. I agree. That's the case with a lot of health conditions, sure. by the way. Sure. Okay. As we get better at diagnosing. But I do think that it is going up regardless. There is a chicken and egg situation when it comes to determining the phone's role because is it that – those with anxiety and depression are self-soothing through their Mm. phones or are the phones causing the anxiety and depression and therefore the phones are to blame? Can I just volunteer yes? Yes. As the answer to that? To both? Yes. Okay. The answer is yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The answer is 100% yes. Yes. And a whole host of other factors like shit's crazy right now in the world. Hi, friends. Welcome to the human element. Shit's crazy now in the world. In case you you haven't been paying attention. But but I think that we have a responsibility as consumers, as parents, as friends, as partners to look out for each other. Honestly, it sounds like a joke, but it's it's very serious when it comes to screen time and ensuring that we're all making sure that we're policing ourselves. It's also the responsibility of 
companies, of brands, brands to play a role here. Yeah. And it's no surprise that companies like Apple and, and Google have provided tools to cut back on screen time or at least evaluate screen time. Next question is around, look, you can't swing a dead cat in our industry and not run into the topic of data and privacy. All of the space that you occupy has an incredible sort of manifestation of data power in it, but the corresponding reality of that is there's a whole data and privacy element to it, especially in the health wellness segment. Where are we in that journey and, 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 and what's next? We as consumers, if we can start there, are a little confused and maybe confused about the power that we may or may not have and confused about how much data we actually need to give up. Okay, so one example that came up very recently was uh, Face App. Yeah. Did you download it? I did not. Okay, I did. Mm. Mm. How are you feeling about that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. right? So a brilliant writer on our team, Rai, he wrote this story that was basically like, if Face App was a test, we all failed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the truth. So we as consumers are still willing to give up significant amounts of data in return for something. But Sharon, it was a fair value exchange. <laughs> you know what's funny is I think that there are a lot of consumers who would say, oh, yeah. Yeah. Eh. I wanted I wanted an old picture of me. Yeah, it was funny. It was cool. I don't know, whatever. I didn't, I haven't committed a crime. They can have my face, right? Like I bring that up because consumers are so willing to give up so much data without question. They're really trusting of their phones, of the services that they use, that they, that they know and don't know. I think what we're starting to understand as an industry and what's becoming incredibly clear, if it wasn't already before, is that It is not the consumer's responsibility to police their own data and privacy. It's just not. That's my perhaps unpopular opinion, but it's impossible for any given consumer to understand the implications of any given action that they do on their devices. You know what else consumers aren't great at policing by themselves? how many drinks they should have before they get behind the (laughs) wheel of a car. That's true. And you know what? Technology will actually solve that. Yeah, and so my point here is why we think we should be allowed without any regulation of any shape, form, type, what have you, or at least not a lot, to self-select all elements of our data privacy presence online. That is just as flawed as you can have a suitcase of Corona light and call it a night and get behind the wheel of a car. And the state or the government would never let you do that. Absolutely. Your friend is right. We did fail the test. We massively. Did. We completely f- failed the test. Now We're going to fail the next one, too. What is also true is that data can be incredibly useful from a user experience perspective and from an actual yeah. providing true value. And if we go back to health and wellness, I think that's where it really shines the most. If you, consumer, give me blood pressure data 24-7, I, the service, I, the healthcare provider, can let you know very early on when you may be running into a serious issue rather than having to deal with treatment later. So what we have found in our own studies and just anecdotally in the market is that 
people are willing to give up very personal data in return for very high value services. And I think that's the question that should be top of mind for anyone utilizing highly personal data for a service or a product. Which brings us back to the power of brands. Fantastic. All right, lightning round. You ready? Let's do it. Favorite digital experience, not your own. I'm going to be a a little boring. To me, it's obvious. It's still voice assistance. So I'm not sick of it because the potential has yet to be unlocked. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's just so exciting to me because it goes back to what we were talking about with regards to screen time. I think it's going to be the thing that takes us away from our screens. Yeah. Will we retain less knowledge because we're constantly getting knowledge on demand? Probably yes. But I think if the trade-off is spending more time with other humans and spending less time with our phone in our grip, then I'm— not being blind at 50. Yes. Yeah. Best piece of content recently consumed, and I know you like parameters, so I'm going to give these to you. Could be a podcast, could be a Netflix series, could be a movie, could be a, oh my lord, a book. I just started listening to My Favorite Murder. Ah, mm-hmm. is that sort of your genre wheelhouse? No, no, no. It is not my genre wheelhouse at all, which is why it took me this long. Okay. I am very much. If I read a book, it's nonfiction. If I'm listening to a podcast, it needs to improve my life. I don't like this podcast. Uh- <laughs> But so it was a bit of a stretch for me, but I am very into the storytelling. Got it. Okay. Best career advice you've either given or received? If you don't ask, the answer will always be no. I may tell my daughter that tonight. Although I really don't want her to continue to ask me for things. So maybe (laughs) I'll... She should. I'm The best things that have happened to me in life and my career have been because I asked. Competitor you most admire? Right now I'm focused entirely on health and wellness. Yeah. And... Therefore, I'm looking at a lot of competitors in that area. And I wouldn't say that they are a direct competitor because they do and will continue to do a lot that we don't. But I'm a huge fan of what Well and Good is doing. Mm. They do offline activations. They know exactly who their audience is, this young female audience who cares about their health and well-being and understands that they have resources all around them to make their lives better. And Well and Good is helping them find those resources and and be a voice of authority in that space. So I keep an eye on them. Awesome. One thing people should know about you, but they don't. It's really on theme, but for some reason, people think it's weird that I read and listen to a lot of medical nonfiction. And so I'll read about surgeries, weird diseases, really? neurological disorders. You are a fun date. Listen to that. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Until I was a freshman in college, I wanted to be a dermatologist. Mm, interesting. So I was a pre-med when I entered college. And then I took a few biology classes and I was like, this wait, sucks. this for like <laughs> 10 more years? Yeah. Nope. (laughs) No. Thank you so much. You are fantabulous, and we would love to have you back. Would you do that? I would absolutely love to come back. Thank you. Love New York. Love you guys. Thank you for having me. And again, we got the weather to be reasonably okay. It's all about me bringing San Francisco here, and I'm happy to do it anytime. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for joining us. This is another episode of The Human Element. Please, you can find us anywhere that you find your pods. And if you feel so moved, subscribe or give us a like, and we'll be back out to you real soon. Bye-bye.